0: 1854, Nunavut. In the days before Canada was a country, back when it was the fur trapper's paradise known as Rupert's Land, explorers of all stripes strode the frozen landscape in search of fortune and glory. But the men squatting in this igloo, buffeted by dire winds of the frozen north, aren't looking for those high-minded gulls. They're actually on a rescue mission of great importance. The lives of their friends and fellow countrymen are on the line, Across from them, lit by the lone fire providing light and heat in this polar winter, sits the Inuit man. His people have survived, even thrived in these harsh lands for millennia, and these strangers from across the sea have many questions for him about the Kabluna, the foreigners, the white men, seen in the area some years ago. The Scotsman is the one leading the interrogation. John Ray, hero of the Orkney Islands, He's got his sights set on finding this missing expedition. He's famous already for his overland treks through Canada, and it's his use of indigenous tactics that gives him the edge, being particularly prodigious with the snowshoe. He hopes that by finding these missing men, he'll cement his legacy as an Arctic great. With him is an expedition of about 30, but in this igloo, it's just him and his interpreter. They take out some photographs, small and framed, and pass them to the Inuit man. These daguerreotypes with the height of fashion and technology and the best bet at finding the men they're looking for. The Inuit looks them over and stops. He motions to one photograph and says, Agluka. This clue is tantalizing to Ray, but frustrating. Agluka means long strider in Inuktitut, but it can also be used as a given name. As such, a number of European Arctic explorers, including Ray himself at one point, ended up with the name Agluka. but it's enough for him because the man in the photo, a man called Francis Crozier, is just the man that Ray is looking for, and he's had that name too, and if the Inuit man has any information, he wants it. Desperately, they ask for clues as to the whereabouts of Agluca and his men, but the native's face goes dark. When Ray presses him, he reaches into a sealskin sack and produces a handful of small, metal objects. Brass buttons, stamped with Royal Naval insignias. Ray's heart sinks. These items are genuine. The Inuit explains that when he last saw Agluka, he and a mere handful of men were trekking southward with no food and no supplies. Agluka looked determined, but he was gaunt, blood running from his gums and scalp, and his detachment looked more like a band of walking corpses than a Royal Naval expedition. Then, the Inuit tells them something that they don't want to believe, but they know in their hearts to be true. When he next saw the Kabluna, they had been cut to pieces and eaten by their fellow man, and they were all dead. Ray gets up to leave and the Inuit man gives him one last word of advice. I know what you're looking for, but you won't find it. Those men are dead and gone. As Ray and his men return to the shelter for the night, their minds race. What will they tell the Admiralty? What do they tell the wife of the man who they were sent to find? And how would the British Empire react to learning the fate of the Franklin Expedition? Hello and welcome to Demystified, with me, Ashley Stiles. Today we're going to be looking at a mystery a lot like last week, something that's very much on the verge of being solved, but may yet go unsolved forever. The fate of the Franklin Expedition. Now to tell this story in full, and it's going to take a while, this will be a little bit of a longer episode this week, we're going to have to go all the way back to the very beginning, long before this eponymous explorer and his crew go missing. We're going to need to take a look at the object they were after, the fabled Northwest Passage. Now, the Northwest Passage is real. It was first traversed by Roald Amundsen, of South Pole fame, in a small boat, the Gyoa, in 1903 and ending up in 1906. But it had been sought after for centuries before that. Now, the reason why is because the Panama Canal wouldn't be more than a pipe dream until the extremely late 19th century, so if you wanted to sail from Europe to Asia, you had to go round Cape Horn to the west or the Cape of Good Hope to the east, the southern tips of South America and Africa respectively. But if, say, there was a northern route that could cut the corner and take you from Portsmouth to Hong Kong in half the time, you could monopolise that trade and you would make absolute gangbusters. To that end, the British Imperial Administration became obsessed with the Northwest Passage. Finding it would mean an infinite monopoly on European-Asian trade forever. And now, enter the man behind the ill-fated expedition and so many other expeditions before it, Sir John Barrow. Barrow was an English politician, who in 1804 became second secretary to the Admiralty, a position he held for over four decades. During this time, he was captivated by Arctic exploration, both north and south, and sent numerous expeditions off in the name of scientific discovery. But by the 1840s, Barrow was getting old, and he knew his time was limited, so he wanted to cement his lifetime's work by finding the fabled Northwest Passage. So, an expedition was put together. Two ships, the most advanced of their day would sail for northern Canada and attempt to map out the remaining 500 kilometers or so of coastline that was finally left to fully map the northwest passage. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but that 500 miles was that off the northern edge of mainland Canada. To actually traverse the passage would require incredibly careful picking through a dizzying maze of ice flows, islands, fjords, pack ice and blizzards. To enter the confusion, there were several misconceptions popular in the Admiralty at the time, the most damaging of which was the idea that there was undoubtedly an open sea encircling the North Pole, just as there's an open ocean encircling the South Pole, the Southern Ocean. This meant that all the expedition would have to do would be to sail through that initial ice maze, find an opening to the Great Open Ice Sea, and then just sail straight through China, when in reality it was a lot more complicated than that. So the expedition was created and set to launch in 1845, now we need ships and crew. We'll talk about the two separately because they both factor very heavily into the story that's going to unfold. First, we're going to talk about the crew. Leading the expedition is the famous Sir John Franklin. Franklin's career in the navy got off to a good start by simply being present at the Battle of Trafalgar and serving admirably. After that, he was chosen to lead several overland expeditions into the Canadian Arctic, but one of these, the Coppermine expedition, went very badly. He lost 11 of his 20 men, and because they were reduced to eating lichen off the bare rocks and shoe leather, he became widely known by his new nickname, the Man Who Ate His Own Boots. Still, his other two expeditions went successfully enough to earn him promotions, and eventually the position of Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land, which is now Tasmania. But this didn't last very long, and after failing to play politics in the region, he was ousted in a scandal and returned to Britain. Now he was ageing in his late 50s, and looking for a final, glorious feather in his cap to round off his career, a promotion to Admiral, and then a quiet, glorious retirement. So when the Northwest Passage expedition was offered to him, he leapt the chance. Now, Franklin cut a divisive figure. On the one hand, he was universally liked. Vivacious, highly religious and proper, kind to his men, he was said to love them more than God himself. But this came at a cost. He was the man whom everyone liked but no one respected. Despite being slated for that final promotion to Admiral in the polar exploration community in the Discovery Service, he was seen as something of a joke. In fact, he only actually got the lead on the expedition because several other explorers had turned down the lead, like James Clark Ross, or been intentionally ignored, like the next man we're going to talk about. He also had a nasty habit for stubbornness and taking unnecessary risks. You can see where that's going to get dangerous. Then we have the man who would be Franklin's second-in-command, and eventually take over the expedition, Francis Crozier. Remember him from earlier? Agluka? Crozier had been on many journeys, both north and south, and was easily one of the most experienced Arctic explorers on the expedition, perhaps even in the whole of the Royal Navy. He'd sailed under William Parry and James Clark Ross, two very famous polar explorers, commanded ships in icy waters of the Arctic and Antarctic, and he even jointly held the record for furthest south with James Clark Ross. He was a famous explorer in his own right. But Crozier had some fatal flaws of his own. Despite easily being the man to lead, he was Irish. In the age of British imperialism, it would not do to have an Englishman follow an Irishman, so he was not only made second in command, but a lot of his duties were given to the man who was third in command. A great embarrassment. This green glass ceiling he'd experienced throughout his career also made him something of an introvert. He had a big chip on his shoulder, for good reason, but he didn't at all fit the expected figure of a gentleman officer. He was withdrawn, brooding, quiet and melancholy, preferring to dine alone rather than with the other officers. To make matters in this particular instance worse, he'd actually met Franklin before when travelling to the Antarctic, stopping off in Tasmania. He fell in love with Franklin's ward, Sophia Craycroft, but after being led on, she actually rejected him three times. Talk about awkward. Next, we have the dashing man of action in the expedition's third-in-command, James Fitzjames. Captain Fitzjames was the rising star whiz kid of the navy, being relatively young for a commander and a captain in his early 30s. Handsome by the standards of the day, quick-witted, charismatic and fearless to a fault, he constantly put himself into dangerous and risky situations to great success, being consistently rewarded for his gallantry, for example, when he took a bullet from a Chinese sniper in the First Opium War and served with distinction in the Middle East and Egypt. But this bravery came from a deep-seated insecurity. You see, Fitzjames was a bastard, at a time when that would make you a social pariah. His father was a consul general in Brazil, and his mother an unnamed local, which also potentially made him interracial, if only a name alone, which was a serious taboo in Victorian Britain. He was pawned off on a family friend, and named James Fitzjames, which means James, son of James, as a final kick in the teeth. Furthermore, his meteoric rise wasn't just thanks to his genuine bravery and skill, In Singapore, during the Opium War, he met one George Barrow, and saved him from a serious scandal. Historians speculate it may have been a homosexual encounter, again, by the standards of the day, that was a big taboo. Whatever it was, Fitzjames gave some money to the right people, and Barrow was immensely thankful. Soon after, he was contacted by one John Barrow, George Barrow's father, and the Second Secretary of the Admiralty, and was given command, after command, after promotion, after promotion. In fact, it's even been suggested that Barrow tipped Fitzjames to be the leader of the Franklin Expedition, but that was a bridge too far. He was simply too young and inexperienced, and so he was made commander of Franklin's ship and third in command overall. Now, there are plenty more colourful characters in this expedition, but we would genuinely be here all day if we were to list everybody on the manifest. The last person I'll mention is Harry Goodsir a surgeon whose contributions to the field of biology were genuinely pioneering, in a paper jointly published with his more famous brother, John Sir on cell theory. Now, one side effect of Fitzjames being third in command, and in charge of a lot of the duties of the second in command, was that a lot of the officers that he brought on the expedition, as was his prerogative, were his close friends. Now, on the one hand, it's a smart move. If you know you're going to be stuck together for a while, and they're all competent sailors, what's the big deal? but almost none of them had arctic experience, which on this sort of venture would be invaluable. Now that we have our main characters, let's look at the ships. The HMS Erebus and HMS Terra seem to be almost begging for disaster with names like that. They were given such ill-fated names because they both started life as bomb vessels, whose decks were reinforced to carry mortars meant for naval sieges, Terror, for example, was present at the siege that inspired the Star-Spangled Banner. Both had been Arctic exploring before. James Clark Ross and Crozier had sailed them to furthest south in an attempt to reach Antarctica, so they were tried and tested ice vessels. They had all sorts of amenities, boilers to provide central heating, big steam engines taken off of railway carriages to allow a propeller to help them cut through the ice, hermetical compartments warding off flooding, reinforced steel bows, a fully stocked library and costumes set to keep the crew entertained, the latest in canned food provisions. At first glance, it seems like they're the perfect choice. But a lot of these elements have drawbacks. The engines might as well as been anchors for all the good they did, they weren't naval engines so they produced a meagre four knots of speed under full steam. The ship that towed Erebus in Scotland, the HMS Rattler, a famous ship in its own right, could do double the speed at half the size of the engine, because it was a naval engine. The canned food ended up being a fifth column. It had been hastily prepared by the lowest bidder, and so it was dangerously contaminated with lead. Not enough to kill the men outright, but enough to be a serious contributing factor to a lot of other problems. And the size and strength of the ships at first seemed like an advantage, you can push through the ice. But without the steam engine, the sails weren't much good at that, and this part of the Arctic is very narrow and full of small waterways and shallow coastlines. Amundsen, for example, found that his small, shallow draft boat coped far better than the lumbering Erebus and Terra. Now we have our ships and crew, let's look at the timeline. The expedition departed Kent on the 19th of May, 1845. After stopping off in Stromness, the Orkney Islands, it took them 30 days to sail to their first checkpoint, Greenland. On the way to Greenland, five men had to be sailed back to England due to an illness. Those men didn't know it then, but they turned out to be the lucky ones. It was at this point that the final letters to home were sent in the ships made for the Lancaster Sound, the entrance to the icy maze into which they were about to sail. The last time they were seen alive was July of 1845. Some whalers spotted them in Baffin Bay, waiting for good weather. And then, just like that, they vanished. We'll stick with 1845 and come back to it, let's carry on with the established timeline for now. For the first winter and the next, it was assumed that there was no problem. In Arctic exploration, one would almost expect that you'd be frozen in sea ice for at least one winter, so there was no concern. Except for Lady Jane Franklin, John Franklin's wife, She was getting concerned. She had a nasty gut feeling that something wasn't right and began petitioning the Admiralty to send a search party. After all, the optimistic predictions had been that one summer's sailing and then out through one winter. When no word was received by 1848, three years later, the Admiralty started to get worried. The ships were provisioned for three years, up to five with rationing, but that meant that if Franklin's expedition was in trouble, then there was no time to lose. John Ray went overland from the south, James Clark Ross went from the Atlantic, and Henry Kellett went from the Pacific, a three-pronged search party. The reward? £20,000, a king's ransom in those days, to whoever could bring back word of their whereabouts. The expeditions turned up nothing, and public attention reached a fever pitch. The search for Franklin was described as a crusade, and Lady Jane even got her good friend Charles Dickens to constantly ask anybody who could sail to the Arctic to search for her husband there. The first finds came in 1850. A joint American and British effort found three graves on Beachy Island, north of the Lancaster Sound. Three men of the Franklin crew, John Torrington, John Hartnell and William Brain, had died of illness in the winter of 1845-46, and had been buried there, but no real communication had been left. In 1852, a large expedition almost ended in disaster of its own, as four of the five ships were abandoned in the ice. One of these ships, the HMS Resolute, was recovered by the Americans, and in gratitude, the British made it into the Resolute Desk, which sits in the White House's Oval Office to this very day. Then we arrive where we started. 1854. John Ray discovers some more concrete clues. He meets an Inuit man who tells him that he discovered a group of about 40 white men, led by a tall man with a telescope. They were trying to communicate that their ships had been sunk and they needed food. The Inuit gave them what they could spare, but they couldn't afford to support all of the men, so they left. When the Inuit returned the next spring, the men had all died of starvation. In their last moments, they'd resorted to cannibalism, and they ended up giving Ray some artefacts to prove the story. Ray also himself found a silver plate with Franklin's name engraved on it. A year later, more explorers found evidence of a long overland trek from the north, as well as more native testimony of having seen these Kalunat, which is anglicized to Kabluna. Public reaction at this point was complete outrage. Whilst Ray had found solid evidence to suggest that Franklin and all or most of his men were dead, the public refused to believe it. Lady Jane Franklin just was in complete denial of her husband's fate. Charles Dickens in particular went after the Inuit and their accounts, saying, quote, We submit that the memory of the lost Arctic voyages is placed by reason and experience high above the taint of this easily allowed connection. And that the noble conduct, and example of such men and their own great leader himself, under similar endurances, believes it and outweighs, by the weight of the whole universe, the chatter of a gross handful of uncivilized people with a domesticity of blood and blubber. End quote. So we see a little bit of Victorian racism slipping in there from Dickens. For his part... Dickens knew the men to be dead, and in the same article argued that that was the reason as to why their legacy as heroes should be preserved, rather than, quote, tainted by the lies of inferior peoples. The next major finding comes from Francis Leopold McClintock's 1859 expedition, which was commissioned privately by Lady Jane Franklin herself. The expedition discovered something extremely important, a note, left in a stone cairn on King William Island. Now, these notes were standard practice in the Royal Navy's expeditions. They had requests, written in a variety of languages, to be forwarded to the Admiralty as soon as possible. The main body of the note was written in May of 1847. It stated that Franklin was in command, they'd wintered in Beechey, and all was well. But scrawled in the margins was another letter, April of 1848 which stated that on the 22nd of April the crew had decided to abandon both ships after being stuck in the ice off King William Island for nearly two years. By this point, 24 men had died, including Sir John Franklin himself, and Crozier was in command. Fitzjames signed off the second letter, but misdated several events, indicating a deteriorating mental state. Crozier's plan, according to the second note, was to lead the remaining 105 men to Baxfish River, some 800 miles away, and then float in their lifeboats to a Hudson's Bay company outpost. A bleached skeleton, thought to be steward Thomas Armitage, with the papers of his shipmate Harry Pegler, was also found, as well as one of the aforementioned lifeboats, and in the lifeboat were some strange items, silverware, a writing desk, and a large number of books, things that the men on the expedition could never possibly need. Then came Charles Francis Hall, an American, He collated a large number of Inuit testimonies in the 1860s and by 1869 had found more remains. A body, at the time thought to be Lieutenant Henry Levescont, but later thought to be Harry Goodsir, was returned to England and examined by the famed biologist Thomas Henry Huxley. Hall's main conclusion was that the stories of any of Franklin's men being alive were unlikely to be true. By now, they were all dead. The last serious contemporary expedition was American Frederick Schwatka's overland expedition, but this did little except to confirm existing theories. From then on, search parties died away. The public decided to accept their pleasant memory that the men had all died as brave heroes for the Empire. For his part, John Ray had to fight tooth and nail to be repaid the reward he was owed for finding evidence. The expedition highlighted shifting societal norms, At one time, cannibalism among sailors was an unspoken thing, known as the rule of the sea, due to how established it was. The case of the whaling ship Essex, which inspired Moby Dick, shows this. It was well known that if push came to shove, you'd draw straws. It was the way of things. But this tradition conflicted with the ever-increasing importance of Victorian social values, under which cannibalism was something practised by savages, and noble Englishmen would never stoop to such things. So whilst Ray's findings shocked nobody in the spheres of Arctic exploration and sailing, the public outcry was severe. But the story doesn't end there. In 1981, some more skeletons were found on King William Island and they were tested, which showed a severe vitamin C deficiency, pointing to that worst of sailors' nightmares, scurvy. But this wasn't the most surprising thing. These results, combined with testings done on the bodies buried at Beachy Island, showed a very high lead levels in the men either from spoilt provisions that had been improperly soldered or contaminated drinking water in lead pipes. The bodies on Beachy Island were horrifying because the permafrost had preserved the men remarkably well. If you've got a strong constitution, you can go ahead and google that. The next few decades saw increased interest in the expedition, and even more bones were found. Marks on them confirmed the stories of cannibalism. Finally, in 2014 and 2016, the wrecks of HMS Erebus and HMS Terra respectively were found. Submerged off the coast of King William Island, they were apart, indicating that they drifted away from each other in the pack ice and sunk independently. Sixty five of the first artifacts recovered will belong to the UK, but the wrecks themselves now belong to Canada and the Inuit people. So, from these discoveries we can piece together our final timeline. In the summer of 1845, the Franklin Expedition sails into the Lancaster Sound and heads north to Winter Island after circumnavigating Cornwallis Island. Here, three men die and are buried before the expedition continues on south. The expedition then reaches King William Island, but Franklin, believing it, as many did at the time, to be King William Land, a peninsula, decides to sail west around it rather than east. Amundsen later sailed east a safer route, but perhaps too shallow for Erebus and Terror. Sailing west leads him directly into oncoming pack ice. Unbeknownst to the crew, the winter of 1845-46, where they were wintering up in Beachy Island, had been unusually cold, and the sea ice hadn't melted as expected. So the ships then become stuck in pack ice, which wouldn't normally be a major problem, but the cold winters didn't stop. By the time the crews have realised from the spoil cans that the food is poison, the vitamin C in their lemon juice is starting to decay. By 1848, a large portion of the crew are dead, including their leader. Crozier then gives the order to abandon ship and make for Baxfish River southward to try and get help. From there, it just devolves into chaos and speculation. We know from the direction of one boat found that it's likely some men attempted to return to the ships. We think that Crozier and about 40 men met the Inuit and asked for help, but due to hostile terrain and scarce food could only get a small amount. Then we just fall apart. All the men are dead by 1850, and it's thought that some might have lived unto or past 1851, but those are just stories circulating. Some suggest that a handful of men might be living with Inuit tribes or other native tribes further south, but what's clear is that none of them ever get back to England. It's thought by some that they may have made it just shy of Banksfish River, by the way, where it meets the sea, a heroic feat, but sadly in vain. And thus ends the Franklin Expedition. So that's the story of the Franklin Expedition. A lot to get through, but it's a long story that's worth telling. With all that said and done, what really happened? Well, it was probably a combination of things. Let's start with the lead poisoning, because for a long time, that was the front-runner theory as to why so many men died so early on. The canned food was riddled with it, it would have been in their drinking waters, and toxic levels were found within the bodies of the men. These levels were not, however, high enough to kill the men outright. But you know what that amount of lead does do to somebody? It causes loss of coordination, memory loss, confusion, mood swings, hallucinations, and paranoia. When you've got a crew of men that's stuck in almost perpetual darkness from the polar winter with dwindling supplies, it's probable that their decision-making skills are not going to be peak at best. Furthermore, the improperly sealed cans would have likely carried botulism, a bacterial infection that can thrive in poorly sealed cans, and if it doesn't get treated quickly, it can be lethal. Then there's the scurvy. As I've mentioned before, we like to think of scurvy as yara or pirates when we you know, think of it in our heads, but it's a horrifying disease. Your gums bleed, as does your scalp. Your teeth become loose and fall out. Your muscles feel like they have glass in them. You become extremely sensitive to light. Eventually, your cells all start breaking down and you die of blood loss because your body just can't keep the blood in. This, by the way, would have made pulling heavy sledges and lifeboats even harder for those trying to make it to Baxfish River. Then there's exposure and hypothermia. The kits of the Arctic Explorers at the time were made of wool, Now, the Inuit had and have caribou fur, the warmest naturally occurring material on earth due to the hexagonal cell shapes that trap warm air and its relative hydrophobia. On the other hand, wool, which the British explorers were using, gets wet fairly easily, and when it does, it freezes, which ironically increases heat loss. On top of that is plain old malnutrition. With almost no food and barely any game on King William Island, the crews of Erebus and Terra had no idea how to hunt in the Arctic. Roald Amundsen spent an extra year on his expedition learning the ways of the Inuit, and it took him that long to learn how to hunt seal. It's an incredibly delicate process that requires a lot of time and a lot of patience. And Franklin's men didn't have time or patience. There are also some more out there theories with this story, as with all the stories we'll cover. Some have suggested polar bears. Whilst The Terror, the TV show based on the eponymous book, is a little more supernatural than useful, it's a great show by the way, it's an interesting semi-sort of depiction of this. Polar bears are much faster than humans on land and water, they don't hibernate in the winter, they're almost impossible to scare away, they actively hunt humans as food, and they can be up to 8 feet tall when standing. It's pretty unlikely that they would have been any kind of major factor in this failure, but I wouldn't rule it out as a minor factor. You know, they probably would have complicated things in an already bad situation. Many at the time suspected that the Inuit had something to do with it, but that's unlikely too. The Franklin Expedition had guns, and the Inuit weren't in the habit of attacking white explorers. It was usually far more profitable for both to trade. The Inuit could provide much-needed food, and the explorers had access to technology that was beyond what the Inuit could make, like telescopes and compasses. So what I think happened is this. The explorers' immune systems get compromised by the lead poisoning. This causes five men to go back to England sick, and three to die on Beachy Island after a small outbreak of tuberculosis. This also eventually kills the other 24 men over time, including Franklin. Other factors, like accidents and hypothermia, or maybe even polar bears, notwithstanding. Then, when the ships are frozen in for nearly two years, and nearly three years total has passed, Crozier decides to abandon the ships. They never expected to be frozen in for so long. A series of record winters, as confirmed by modern ice core samples, caused the temperature to go as low as minus 40 or colder, and the pack ice refused to melt. This also increased the dangers of exposure and hyperthermia, as well as continuing to weaken the immune systems of the men. By now, they probably know that the food was tainted. It would be spoilt, the men would have died from botulism or other illnesses, and the lemon juice they brought would be losing its anti-scurvy properties. So the men march south, riddled with lead poisoning and scurvy, hauling heavy sledges and lifeboats full of supplies that they know they don't want to eat. Their judgments are clouded, and they take items that they don't need. They record dates wrong and eventually they get lost and splinter off into several smaller groups. Crozier and his group meet some Inuit who initially feed them, but when they realise that they can't support the sailors, they have to leave them. A handful of men end up making it to near Fish River. Some have returned to the boats, others have encamped on King William Island, but most have succumbed to hypothermia, exposure, scurvy, malnutrition, and starvation. It's possible, but unlikely, that some of the remaining men integrated with native groups, Whatever happens, none of the men ever get back to Britain alive. This story is the fall that ended the Icarus flight of the British Empire's exploration craze. A society hell-bent on bending nature to its will was shown that no amount of technology and daring do can undermine something as basic as the cold. It's a story of hubris, a tragic tale of men who wanted so badly to go down in the annals of history. And in a way they did! Because their ships were frozen in west of King William Island, and some of the men made it very far south on the trek, it's pretty likely they would have been able to see the Pacific entrance to the Northwest Passage. They didn't sail it, but maybe they found it. To that end, by the way, Franklin's statue in London credits him as the discoverer of the Northwest Passage, and there's a monument to that expedition at the Royal Naval College in Greenwich. The statue reads, They forged the last link with their lives. So what can we take from the story of the Franklin Expedition? Well, I think what we can really take is the lesson that sometimes the lessons of history have to be learned the hard way, and when you do learn them, it's best to internalize them and really take them to heart, because they come at a cost that is greater than one can know. For example, we've mentioned Roald in many times this episode, The lessons he learned that he implemented on his Northwest Passage expedition and later Arctic expeditions were learned at the cost of the lives of the Franklin expedition. He learned, for example, to utilize native tactics, caribou fur clothing and sleeping bags, seal hunting in the ice, how to build igloos, how to deal with extreme cold temperatures. All of these things that he decided to pick up on were directly influenced by the failures of the Franklin expedition, and that really is the kind of slanted gift that they give to us with their sacrifice that the people who come before us in general give to the people who come today in general with their sacrifices from having lived their lives and made their mistakes. We can learn from their examples and move forward. And that's, you know, in a very general perspective, that's why it's important to study history because we can learn from the lessons of the past and build a better future in the same way that Roald Amundsen learned the lessons of the Franklin Expedition and built his better future through those lessons. And so, in some way, I would say that they did forge that last link in the chain with their lives. You've been listening to Demystified with Ashley Styles. This episode was written, produced, researched, and edited by me, Ashley Stiles, with hosting help from Wizard Studios. Royalty-free music was provided by ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.